Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. To find out if it's right for you. Over the course of the night, a bullet had come through. The decapitated body found at a queen's bar. Now, you see those words, you know, just decapitated in there, and already you're keyed in. And somebody mentioned that it may have been a topless bar. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. It was the headline that went viral 1983 style, inspired the movies, and is being celebrated by old school tabloid hacks across the world, even 40 years on. Headless Body in Topless Bar was penned by the legendary New York Post editor Vincent Massetto after a cocaine fueled crime spree by criminal Charles Dingle. Today, I'm talking with journalist Brad Hunter, formerly of the New York Post, about the headline and the gruesome story behind it. This is Crime World, a podcast from SundayWorld.com. So, 40 years, Brad, since the probably the most iconic headline in tabloid history hit the newsstands. Yes, April 14th, 1983. And that headline was Headless Body in Topless 
bar, which, you know, our more genteel uh, colleagues in the business, uh, no doubt mortified, but uh, those of us uh, with a bit of sawdust under our feet loved it. You see, I let you say that. <laughs> well, you don't want to get any trouble at any uh, any press functions. No, no. So, um, 1983, and that headline, as they say, went as they'd say today, went viral. But back then, going viral meant they couldn't keep the newspaper on the stands. It sold a phenomenal amount, and um, you know, it was that headline. It was the, the 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 sensation of it that grabbed people. But behind it, there was a real story, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, but where were you at then? Me, I was still in high school. <laughs> so uh, it's uh, yeah, it was before my time. But I did see it because you know I uh, were you know I grew up in Canada, but we were at the tail end of the New York Post distribution range. So I got it. And I guess in you know my uh, twisted teenage way, I saw it as a, a work of genius right from the minute I, I saw it. And, and yeah. you know, I knew that uh, the Post was where I wanted to be. Yeah, I was going to say that when you rattled up some years later into the New York Post as a, a rookie reporter, was it still spoken of? Was that you know, headlines still iconic then. Did people remember the day? Yeah, it was it was revered, and there were lots of people around uh, that uh, that that were involved in that. Now, I was a rookie at the New York Post, but I wasn't a rookie in the business. But uh, the the thing is, just a short background. The Post was uh, an afternoon tabloid that, that was. And not quite so racy. It had been racy and then a not. And then, but it was suffering the ailments of a lot of afternoon papers and whatnot. And then uh, in November 1976, Rupert Murdoch buys it. Now, you got to remember the post is last place in New York, losing lots of money, and you have to get attention. And, you know, there's no influencers or anything like that. And, you know, the tried and true cocktail of crime and uh, sensation and things like that and very dry, witty headlines and things like that, that that did the trick. So the Post had gone from like, I think, around 400,000 when Murdoch bought it to by that point, nearly a million a day. And one of the one of the things was, is that, you know, shock and awe and those big screaming headlines sort of thing. Uh, the Post at that time was starting to print in the morning, a few editions in the morning, but still mostly in the afternoon. Now, Vinnie Mazzetto was the night managing editor, which took care of the uh, afternoon editions on, on the tabloid. Over the course of the night, a bullet had come through that a decapitated body found at a Queen's bar. Now, you see those words, you know, just decapitated in there, and already you're keyed in. And somebody mentioned that it may have been a topless bar. And, uh, and so he had the headline written and laid out before they even had it confirmed that it was a topless bar or any of the grisly 
uh, sort of details. And it was later put that it was like a bunch of art critics standing around a Rembrandt, ooing and eyeing and how brilliant it was. And he was standing on the desk, uh, Vinnie Mazzetto, he, he died in 2015, uh, cheering on, on the desk. And uh, so at the time as well, uh, New York was beginning its long, or well, it was well into its long, sad descent of uh, uh, an urban apocalypse. And the, the murders had gone from, you know, around 300 in the early 1960s to this point, you know, maybe 20 years later to 1600 murders. And it just seemed like the, the city was falling apart. All the jobs that employed generations of uh, working class uh, New Yorkers had vanished, crack had hit the scene, things were going downhill extremely uh, uh, quickly. So enter into this picture uh, a gentleman named Charles Dingle. He was 23 years old, recently on parole. And so he goes to this joint in Jamaica, Queens, out in the outer reaches of uh, the city and uh, gets into an argument with the owner, uh, Herbert Cummings. Now, Dingle, who was a parolee and he's flying on, he's flying on Coke and booze. Well, one thing leads to another and he shoots uh, several times. He shoots uh uh, Herbert Cummings a number of times in the head, uh, you know, almost like an exclamation point. Also in the bar at the time are four women. And he rapes one of the women there and he holds them hostage. Uh, but here's where, here's the interesting bit. One of the women there was a part-time mortician. So Charles Dingle in his coke-addled brain decides, I know, will get the evidence, the evidence being the slug or the bullet in Herbert Cummings' head, will get that out and there'll be no evidence and I'm in the clear sort of thing. So she gets a steak knife and tries to dig the bullet out. It doesn't work. But just before we, we say anything more about that woman, she wasn't doing that quite willingly. He, she was obviously terrified of... of uh, scared to death. They were all scared yeah. to death. I mean, uh, you know, uh, a quiet time at a neighborhood bar and turned mm -hmm. bloody. Um, so then, you know, obviously under a stagging amount of duress, he ordered her to cut... Uh, Mr. Cummings' head off, and uh, that she did with a, a good deal of difficulty. And I guess he's thinking that, well, if I can't get the bullet, I'll take the head. I'll get rid of the head. There's no evidence. There's nothing to to tie me to this, you know. So he takes the. Uh, uh, Head puts it in a box and he stole a taxi and made two of the women uh, go with him. And, and they drove over to Manhattan to the Washington Heights neighborhood, which 
you know, Jermaine uh, or not used to be a fairly heavily Irish neighborhood, and then it became Irish, Dominican, and now mostly uh, a Dominican neighborhood. I took them to Washington Heights in Upper Manhattan, and uh, you know, uh, part of the thing is he stole the taxi because his own car wouldn't start. So you know, he's got two hostages, and remember, he's blasted out of his head on coke and booze. And so he passes out in, in the car. So the cops, are, you know, another thing comes over the thing about a, a guy being arrested with a head, a severed head in Manhattan. And uh, Vinny Mazzetto, you know, he phoned his guys at the police station and said, is there any connection and they said we're working on it we'll you know we'll let you know sort of thing right and uh so you know it turns out that yes the the corpse in man in queens and uh the uh severed head in manhattan are one and the same and uh so now dingle's uh arrested but they're working on the thing one of the things is somebody a cop or somebody in the newsroom had said this, you know, that this is a topless bar. So they were charging her on that particular angle. And, um, well, you know, I'll back up a second. Is my friend Tom Mansfield, who later became a decorated homicide detective in New York City, he was a rookie uh, cop in uh, that particular precinct that covered the uh, Herbie's bar. And he was one of the first people on the scene and, you know, fairly early going in your career. It was, you know, like a, like a slaughterhouse. It was just a complete mess, but there was, and there was no, there was no head. I mean, they, they, because generally it wasn't, it wasn't really that particular part of Queens, and at that time, wasn't particularly a, a rootin' tootin' shoot 'em up kind of, of of neighborhood. So you know, you're not really used to seeing. Well, I don't think anybody is. Nowhere, I don't think that that's normal. Did just to to be pedantic about it, the topless end of things. I I don't. I'm not hearing the evidence that anybody was topless at any point during this occasion. Well, here's where it goes because outside, there's nothing to indicate. Nobody, you know, and they're they're going, you know, you, old timers like us will remember the uh, cross directory, right? And they're going through there and they're phoning neighbors, and they think maybe it is, but they're not totally sure. So they sent a, uh, a reporter out, uh, Marilyn Matlick, who, who was later my assignment editor. Um, they sent her out there. She was quite young at the time. And there was nothing outside indicating that it was a topless bar. So, you know, these sometimes high pressure competitive situations, it was, uh, you know, uh, insisted that maybe, you know, she climb in through a window or do do something or anything like that. And she got up and she could see the sign inside the bar that said topless dancing. And, you know, I, you know, there's just 
she got immediately back to the paper and just an eruption of, uh, of glee. Like I imagine that headline would have gone anyway, you know, if they could have at any point in the history of the entire bar ever suggested somebody had at any point been topless, it still would have worked because no doubt they were going to make that, they were going to make that story fit that headline one way or another. That was one of the suggestions was that maybe perhaps Marilyn go in, lift her top and then we can say there, it's topless bar. Exactly. But look, it was certainly of its time, of course, but I mean, a headline that is, you know, is still, we're still talking about it, aren't we? 40 years later. Now, your friend, the rookie cop who stumbled upon that scene early in his career, um, did he talk about it much? Was it something that did stand out for him as he as he moved forward? Well, you know, I think at that time he he came on around around that time. And as we'd said, New York was descending into, you know, complete chaos. And so he made it was uh, you know, he he mentioned it to me in passing. It wasn't. Like, hey, I was at the uh, Headless Body uh, story like that because he made Detective two years later, like Detective Third Grade or something like that. So he figured he'd be doing shoplifters, burglaries, you know, different, you know, mundane sort of things like that. But his first day in the job, he was posted to, I can't remember whether it was Brownsville or East New York. And the first day he was there, within an hour, he'd been sent out to do a homicide. To, to you know, which is normally reserved for your most senior sort of detectives, and that's how bad it was. <laughs> so, so I think that for him, you know, it very likely became you know, it's there. He remembered it. You know, he's grossed out by it. But I think it's something that he, that that he uh, that is just one of many anecdotes because you know he. You know, during those those years, like what, what years? What years were you talking about there? And was it all based on the chaos that came with crack cocaine? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was probably starting in the early eighties, and a bit of you know anecdotes for uh, tabloid geeks. But uh, the word crack was first uh, first used in the New York Post as well. That was the first time it was ever used by a rewrite guy named Cy Egan. But uh, but yeah, it's from 82, probably to maybe 96. I mean, things started going downhill. I mean, those crack dealers and crackheads, they don't have a, there's not an old timers day for them. So, uh, you know, and, and plus, you know, a number of uh, policing initiatives, uh, you know, started seeing the murder rate come down, down 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 back to where it was in the 1950s you know at least a number of years ago was it rudy Giuliani who essentially turned it around and cleaned up the streets with that sort of zero tolerance thing we heard of so strongly from new york and i do remember myself going out to new york i know he's very unpopular etc and his links to trump but um he sounded like a kind of a hero back then when he did start to clean up the streets of New York and, you know, it became very safe. Uh, well, I mean, a friend of mine, you, you know, he's a Fulbright scholar, he's a former police captain. And I later worked with him at the post after he retired, he went to work for the post. But, uh, you know, he said, you know, he says any decision to tackle crime 
is a political decision. And, you know, very much so Giuliani was behind that. But the guy that actually did it, the brain who actually did it, or as uh, Billy referred to him as the Oppenheimer of crime fighting, was uh, William Bratton, who was the commissioner of police and brought in kind of a number of oddballs and out-of-the-box thinkers. And then you started seeing it all go down and, you know, making people take responsibility for, uh, you know, cops, particularly taking responsibility because, you know, the way it was explained to me too, though, is at the time is you just wanted to get through your tour. You wanted to get out in one piece and, 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 and like not, <laughs> not one drop more. And, and, you know, it wasn't, it just wasn't worth, worth their while. And, but that attitude changed you know organizationally the nypd you know changed and they things came of that all around so yeah but uh but yeah it was giuliani and bratton yeah and there's been a lot of corruption i think within the nypd and backhanders being taken and scandals and so there was a probably a mixture of um you know a a poor policing system uh, the introduction of crack cocaine into neighborhoods, into impoverished neighborhoods. And as you said, a lot of jobs had gone as well. So it was a bit of a perfect storm for New York. Well, that's, that's right. And, and I mean, the other, uh, the other thing about that too is, is, I mean, during the, uh, during the days of crack, you know, the whole, the whole thing just seemed, you know, completely, uh, completely hopeless, uh, you know, to the point where the New York Post came out with a headline for the former Mayor David Dinkins, Dave, do something, right? And, and, you know, you're seeing all these senseless, you know, sort of murders that, you know, the, the randomness, that was, that was, you know, which is always, you know, if you're playing in the underworld sort of thing, you know, at some point, you know, the, you know, out there uh, in gangland, there's a bullet with your name on it. And, and but it was random. It was, you know, a kid getting stabbed on the stairs of uh, the subway going into uh, from out of town, going into uh, the U.S. Open in Flushing, which is in a bad neighborhood and, and different things like that. So people stopped going out. But when that when the tide flipped, people started going out again. Right. And so that's harder for criminals to operate when <laughs> there's a lot of people around. Uh, or at least the, in, in sort of the, you know, unorganized or disorganized, you know, criminal milieu. And what's uh, the situation like in New York now? It feels it always feels very safe, certainly Manhattan. And um, but I do think that people from this side of the pond can be very shocked and stunned to see the sort of the drug users, their behavior is so alien to us. We don't tend to see that kind of whatever you'd call it, the fentanyl, the crack slight type behavior, um, so much mental health problems mixed with homelessness, mixed with drug addiction on the streets. And it can be quite frightening sometimes when you come out of the subways and, you know, uh, you feel like you're surrounded by people like with severe mental health problems and, and almost zombie-like. Well, yeah, and that's that's the thing. That's That wasn't so much the case during the years I, I was there. But that's becoming more and more 
and more prevalent, uh, uh, you know, particularly with the opioid use. That's, you know, that's a big driving force. Uh, COVID exacerbated uh, uh, mental health issues. And, you know, the cost of actually living in New York has skyrocketed. And so, you know, taken all together, these things, you know, are a recipe for disaster. And it's not just that is, uh, you know, the United States, you know, is, you know, doesn't have socialized medicine like Ireland or Canada or the UK or countless other places. So, yes, you can soar through the roof with all kinds of opportunities. But when you fall, you keep falling, you keep falling, you keep falling till you till you hit the ground. And it's, um you know, that's that's the conundrum of the United States. It's the only Western country that doesn't have some national health, uh, some mm. national health sort of deal. There's no one there to take to pick them up or to. Um, I know I was talking to a, a girl a couple of it was last year and she had worked as a photographer actually for the New York Times and was now working in the ambulance services, had retrained. And she was talking about the, you know, picking up these people who were in such need of mental health uh, help and dropping them to a hospital for a couple of days and knowing that they were going to be released back out onto the streets again. And, you know, you wonder when um, America's going to start to stand up and to kind of help its sick or will it ever? I mean, um, the fentanyl crisis has increased all that to such an extent the behavior on the streets when it comes up into the middle class areas, I think maybe it's when the politicians will start to stand up. Well, that's and, and that's that's like anything, right? Because you can blow it off, and uh, uh, you know, you and I, you know, because of covering crime and whatnot, we kind of may have a bit more jaundiced uh, view of these sort of things. But you're absolutely right. Until some millionaire's kid gets whacked in the middle of the street by, you know, some, some, you know, you know, person having, a, you know, a mental crisis or, or something like that, then nothing, nothing is really done. And, uh, you know, it's basically it's uh, upon the rest of us to slug it out and survive. Uh, mm. And that's not the that's not the core, a cornerstone of a, of a successful society. Mm -hmm. What came of afterwards of the of the well the headline writer you said died in twenty fifteen? Did he go on to did he go on to write plenty more? Well, he he still he said that you know that yes that that was great, uh, but I think uh, I think his personal favorite was Granny executed in her pink pajamas or some such. Oh. Uh, so Velma Barfield, she was a black widow in, I think, uh, North or South Carolina, who, you know, topped uh, a number of husbands that caught up to her and uh, they put her in the chair. So, <laughs> And what, if, what happened with Charles Dingle? Was he ever charged in relation to the murder? Yeah, Char yeah Charles Dingle went down. Uh, I think he went down on second degree murder and you know, he he had made a number of uh, stabs at getting out, um, but uh, but he he never left uh, prison. And, you know, he said he was framed and all sorts of other nonsense. Right, and you know, if you, if you're carrying a severed head, yeah, you know, <laughs> are pretty slim. Yeah, he died in 2012. The other thing about Vinny, who wrote the classic headline, he 
uh, he uh, ended up becoming uh, the art house film critic for the New York Post, which is, I know, kind of ironic, but. Uh, <laughs> I know that Dingle actually did, believe it or not, an interview with the Post in the aftermath and in, in his years as he was trying to get parole, denying he'd anything to do with the crime uh, and telling them that he was going to conduct his own appeal. He didn't need any legal help. So he clearly continued, even behind bars, a chaotic existence. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing, right, is, you know, there's, you know, there's criminals who are smart enough to try that sort of uh, gambit, maybe uh, maybe once and whatnot, but they don't believe that they're actually going to get away with it. And they're delighted if they do. But Dingle was, you know, completely delusional. What I don't I don't know why he would think he would ever get out, particularly, you know, I mean, you know, he might have gotten a good five years before he died if he'd been in Ireland or Canada, but there wasn't going to be a hope in hell of him ever leaving uh, a prison in uh, New York State. Exactly. Well, listen, thank you very much for telling us that story and all about the story really behind that headline. Thank you, Brad Hunter. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from SundayWorld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.